Now it's time. It's now it's time for Nehemiah. Let's get started. We are going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Welcome back. We have sent out on our broadcast list, that's why it's a good idea to be part of our broadcast list, a 10-minute video by Dr. Tim Keller called Discovering the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's a great intro. If you're a guest here or you haven't been following the journey, great overview of what's happening in this book. It comes chronologically at the end of the Old Testament. Typically what's been happening is God has introduced himself, has created, and then there's just sadly this slow but sure rebellion as God moves towards his people, but they move away from him. But finally with this book, there's some good news. There's a slow turn. The rebels have been brought home. We'll get into more details. But it's kind of strange that it's happening in this book because at this point, you find a group of people that are incredibly weak, very vulnerable. They feel incredibly exposed. And yet, when they're the weakest, it seems like the turning is starting to happen. I don't know how you've arrived here today, but there's good news in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah for each and every one of us. And in particular in this chapter, we're going to be looking at holy comfort. A comfort that only can come from a holy God. As good as community is, and I've been talking to you about community, right? It's a good thing. There's something even better. As good as you know, praying for the changing of your circumstances is, there's something even better than the changing of your circumstances. I'm so grateful that we've got many generations that have passed on wisdom to us, and we can access those wisdom, that wisdom, and we're especially keen to listen in a time of crisis. I'm grateful for that wisdom. There's something even better. And I'm grateful for healthier habits, ways to get ourselves out and about and work towards healing. But that something better is holy comfort, something of a vertical, right, as opposed to all the horizontal dynamics, something vertical that happens as deep cries to deep in the deepest parts of our soul. Here's a group of people who are feeling raw, who are feeling vulnerable, who are feeling exposed, they're distressed, they're in pain, they hurt, and here's the kicker, it's all because of what they did. <laughs> this is not something that happened to them, this is something they did themselves, which is even more painful, because then you sit in the regrets of could have, would have, should have, I can't believe I did this. That's where they find themselves. Paul, how do you know all of this from, from Ezra chapter 9? Well, let's read verse 1 together. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So some pretty strong indicators that <laughs> this wasn't business as usual. The, the symbols of grieving are upon them. Notice that they're fasting. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in distress. Fasting is not a choice. It is a, a feeling you have in your stomach. It's like a ball churning around at the bottom there. The last thing you feel like doing is eating. You're not hungry in the slightest. You literally say, I feel sick in my stomach. That is how they feel. They put on sackcloth as a symbol of inwardly what's happening. It's a symbol outwardly that shows people, like, don't come and go, hey, how do you think of the rugby? Like, I'm not interested in that right now. I'm, I'm in distress. It's something that's uncomfortable and itchy, but it's put on as an indicator to others, like, I'm going through a process of pain and grief. And that final one of rubbing earth on your heads, it's something they would have picked up as they looked throughout Scripture. Abraham did it, uh, Job, the whole city of Nineveh did it, Ahab, Tamar. There are many instances of the people of God saying, whoa, I'm reaching a point where I'm re-examining everything. I'm in pain, I'm in distress, 
And I kind of want to go back to first principles. Remember when God created us, he put his hand in the dust. He got his hands dirty and he kind of made us male and female in his image. And it's almost like saying, God, I want to go back. I want to, I want to almost remind myself, what's the first truth? What are the first principles? What's a solid foundation for my life? Because what I was basing it on has given up. And I want to, I want to remind myself of where, where truth truly is. There are people that are weak and vulnerable, but there are people now that are open to hearing from God. Now, if you're a guest here today, if you're a visitor, you're probably thinking, whoa, I thought you guys were meant to be happy clappies. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I just stumbled in here and like, whoa, it's some pretty serious stuff here. There's like earth on people's heads. What's going on? Well, let me, let me let you in. This is a community that wants to worship God in spirit, deep Christ to deep, and also in truth. I want to be real about what's going on in our lives, how we are experiencing the emotions we're going through. And here's the deal. All of us fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. But we can come freshly tonight and confess that and worship in spirit and in truth. And we don't run away from God in our pain. We run towards him. So we arrive here today as a group of people saying, what can we learn from this this weak and vulnerable people that are in pain, that are in distress. And one of the first questions I'd imagine you'd want to ask is, well, why? Why are they in pain? What happened? Let's read from verse 36. We're going to jump ahead to verse 36. This is what they say. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So a quick recap for those of you that are new to the journey. The people of God had a God who covenanted with them, said, I will be your God, you will be my people. He made it clear what his commitment was, and our obedience would be met with a journey towards the goodness of God, but our disobedience would also be punished with, with exile. And as we'll pick up today, the group of people we're reading about decided to rebel against God, and exile was the result. If you look at the next picture, it's a map. In the north, a group of people called the Assyrians came. It's a purple line. They took 10 tribes, 10 tribes of Israel, and they pretty much took them out north, and they assimilated in and blended in. There's no track record of where those 10 tribes are, even to this day. They're gone. And the southern lasted a little bit longer, but eventually the Babylonians came and they took them into exile into Babylon. For 70 years, they were in Babylon, but now the journey back is what we've been tracking, that red line. God sends back Ezra and Nehemiah and they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, and now they're in the process of rebuilding the people. And as I said, we're quite close to the end of the history of the Old Testament. Pretty soon, the Greeks are going to rule over the world with Alexander. They're going to be replaced with the Romans. And we know when the Romans are in charge, Jesus arrives. So this is pretty much the last history book recorded in Scripture. And there are people here who have returned, yes, but they're still conquered. They're still slaves. They're still under the Babylonians, who will soon be replaced by the Persians. And so the land that they have Although they've been able to rebuild it, it's land that they have to functionally give up. And the produce has to go back to their masters. They're not allowed to make weapons. They don't have an army. And they're powerless. And they're in the land that they used to own fully. The land that they used to decide whatever they wanted to do, they could do. And so it's with this echo of sadness that they sit and think, man, we've blown it. We've done it to ourselves. 
And yes, we're back, but it's not like it used to be. They're in pain, they're in distress, and they brought it upon themselves. And what we can do is we can learn from them. Let's just have a look at what they do. We jump back to verse two, right at the beginning. We've, got, we've read already the bit that they, they're in grief, and now in verse two it says, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their, fa- of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So they're in pain. What do they do with it? Well, firstly, they separate from others. They say, guys, we need to process this. We're not going to blend in with everyone else. Neither are we going to just be anti-everyone else. We're just going to recognize, Chish, all that's happening in our lives, let's get with God. Let's go back to first principles. They were called as a nation to be a blessing. They were told, you're going to be blessed to be a blessing. And they've lost their way and they want to regain that. So they confess where they fall short. They put truth on the table. No, no pseudo, pseudo kind of religiosity. They get real and they read the law and they confess to one another. Let's keep reading. A group of the Levites then stand up. There's some lovely names you can consider naming your future sons. And what they say then is stand up Verse 5, and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So what's happening now is they're going to launch into one of the longer prayers. It's going to be a prayer that actually is, an, is a retelling of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. They've read the law and they've reflected on it. They're now going to be telling themselves the story of God throughout history. What's interesting at this point is they're going to say the word you over 30 times. They're going to reference God. You, God, you, God, you, God, over 30 times. It's as if they're saying, hey, yes, we've sinned, we've stumbled, but how we heal and how we find holy comfort is taking our eyes off that and placing it on God. We want to look to Him and see Him glorious. Who is this God? This is the everlasting to everlasting God. We want to take our hearts there. We want holy comfort. Can I say that that's not always easy? That's not always easy because when you're in pain or in distress, sometimes God's the last person you want to talk to. You say, no, God, you allowed this to happen. This isn't the deal I signed up for. And what we're revealing in our hearts is we didn't love God for God. We love God for all the good things he gave us. And when those good things go, we're like, how dare you, God? Maybe we're beating ourselves up in the following way. We're saying, well, God's not interested in me. I brought this upon myself. I did this to myself. How could God be interested in spoiled goods, secondhand goods? There's no ways God could be interested in me. I'm in pain, but I'm not going to go to God with that pain. I'm going to go somewhere else. One of the commentators I read on this said, the tragedy is that so many of us, we dare to say to God, God, you cannot bring me good news. God, you can't bring me good news. You, don't, you, you, you are not allowed to bring me good news. I'm disqualified. I'm unworthy. How dare you tell God he can't bring you good news? What this people, these rebels that had come home to a shadow of its former self, the city, these rebels are wise enough to say, God, we are going to look to you and we're going to focus on you and we're going to tell ourselves the story of the Old Testament. And I personally love history. I've got Paul Johnson, who's a historian, who's written many, many books. He's written a book on the history of the Jews. And this is something he says in that book. He says, the Jews were fascinated by their past from very early times. The Israelites, this is interesting, were the first to create consequential, substantial, and interpretive history. 
He goes on, he says, they knew they were a special people who had not simply evolved from an unrecorded past, but had been brought into existence for certain definitive purposes by a specific series of divine acts no other people had ever shown, particularly at that remote time, so strong a compulsion to explore their origins. This is an historian writing about the first group of people who, who organized their history and looked to it often and thought there's something in this. And it's actually not us, it's God who should be our focus as we do so. So they retell their story. And what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna just read through that chapter and just remind ourselves of that story and learn from them as we are maybe tonight in distress or in pain, in need of holy comfort. If that's not you tonight, soon it will be you. This is, the, this is the nature of life. And we can learn from them what it means to find comfort in retelling the story of God. So let's start reading it together from verse six. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas, which have been quite spicy lately, if you've noticed a few videos, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Start in the beginning. This isn't a world we're in. We're in his world. Then we read from verse seven, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzasite, the Jebusite, and the Jerusite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Crucial sentence. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. There's nothing about Abraham that was special. There's nothing about the people of Israel that's special other than God had made a promise to them. God had made a covenant with them, and he will keep it to the end. He is righteous. That family that we've heard about becomes a nation. They end up going to Egypt. Joseph leads them there out of the famine, and they are enslaved there. Let's read from verse 9. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this why? Why is God working with a family that becomes a nation that then gets trapped in, in exile or in, and then has to be brought out into exodus? Why does God do all of that? It's there. It's there. Do you see that last sentence? You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And so exodus was G God making a name for himself. Exile, a group of people getting brought out of exile, is God making a name for himself. Over the thousands of years of span, what's God doing? God is making a name for himself. That is what he's up to. Now, you might lean in and say, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that a little bit like what you shouldn't do? It's a good question to ask. And I would respond, well, think, let's think together. If you were from everlasting to everlasting, if you were the source of life, if you created everything... You're the eternal one. You are the first truth of all truths. You're the foundation of love and beauty in this world. Is it loving to make yourself known or is it loving to kind of hide in the shadows a little bit and, and kind of hope people figure it out on their own? I put it to you that it's loving to make yourself known so that people 
would know you, therefore be able to trust you, and therefore be able to enjoy you. If that is who you are, if you're the source of all goodness, the good thing to do is tell people about that goodness so that they can enjoy it. The kind of best analogy I could think of was imagine some scientists in the room find the cure for cancer. And we know the devastation cancer's brought to so many. And so you have this cancer. Surely the most kind, generous thing you should do is make it known. <laughs> make it known. How much more if you're the source of life, if you're the author of life, that you should make yourself known. You're not acting arrogant when you're doing so. You're actually acting with supreme love. It is entirely appropriate for the God who has created us to demonstrate his character consistently over thousands of years and make himself known. To take a people, to take a person who becomes a people and to demonstrate time and time again that despite their rebellious ways, despite their vulnerability, their pain, their wayward paths, that you are gonna choose to be faithful to your promise, to your covenant, and to be righteous and demonstrate your goodness through them, to bless them so that they will be a blessing. Friends, do you know what God's up to even now? He's making a name for himself. He's extending his kingdom. And he's the only king who is worthy surrendering to, of acknowledging. John Piper makes the following point. When we're reading these Bible stories and we're seeing God making himself known. He says this, he says, God doesn't exist for the sake of our enjoyment of Bible stories, but Bible stories exist for the sake of our enjoyment of God. We shouldn't read about the Exodus and all the things we're gonna read now and go, ooh, interesting principle, how can I learn? No, we should stop and go, oh, the same God that did that then is the same God who is alive now and who wants me to know him, trust him, and enjoy him. And stories are a big deal right now, right? We, we're all hearing about stories and, and brands want to create stories and all adverts, it's all about the story. And I think that this quote from Harvard Business Review says it well. It says, telling stories is one of the most powerful means that leaders have to influence, teach, and inspire. We've all worked this out. We want to tell stories to one another. It's just this question. Are you sure you're living in the right story? Are you sure you're living in the right story? Jesus Christ comes and he tells a totally different story. He tells parable after parable after parable, trying to shake our minds a bit and say, are you sure you're living in the right story? What story do you believe about life? Where is God in that story? And what is God like? Not the story you give on the quiz question, but the story that really, really maneuvers your heart around and helps you decide decisions. Stories are incredibly powerful. I think of Steve Jobs, who's recognized as one of these leaders that could take stories and turn them powerfully. He approached someone who's the head of marketing for Pepsi, and he said the following thing. He said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to change the world? He took the story and said, nah, man, you're selling sugar water. That's all Pepsi is. Why don't you change the world with me? Same way Jesus Christ tells stories and says, what if the king of the kingdom was here now? What if God was one of us? Change your thinking. Repentance is changing your thinking 180 degrees. It's stepping into a new story about who God is and about who you are. The Israelites right now are enslaved. They're slaves. They're enslaved. They're in pain. What do their leaders do? Their leaders remind them of the story that they are in. 
Now, what we're now going to do is we're going to continue reading this story. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to warn you in advance, there are going to be six moments of just brightness. You're going to be like, woohoo, the curve is turning. And then there are going to be six moments of just bleakness as once again, humanity and it's all its fallenness comes through. So let's read bright spots and bleak spots together. From verse 11, they're getting, they're getting taken out of Egypt now. So this is their big exodus. They're reminding themselves of this. They say, from verse 11, you divided the sea before them. Then I'm leaving out some bits as we go for the sake of time. By a pillar of cloud, verse 12, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night, you to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. They'd lived their whole lives as slaves, doing what Pharaoh said. And God says, oh, Pharaoh used you. I am going to lead you into life. I'm going to show you the path of righteousness. Here's how life works the best. Here's, here's not 10 rules to live by. Here's 10 ways to flourish, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Whoa, what a setup. This is going to be incredible. Let's read from verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey their commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Well, surely that's the end of the story. No, it isn't. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Notice this is in the Old Testament, right? This is not the New Testament. Some people are like, oh, the New Testament God is so kind. Old Testament God seems harsh. No, the same God through all of this, the same God choosing to respond to rebellion with mercy. Verse 18, it says, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed grace, great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 20 says, you gave your good spirit. Notice the spirit at work there. You don't have to wait to Pentecost to see the spirit at work. The spirit's at work amongst this people, God reaching in. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. The good news keeps rolling. Verse 29. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and they captured fortified cities and a rich land and they took possession of houses full of all good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. There's a verse for you guys. The goodness of God overflowing bright spot. Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, which as we'll see is something they're going to still do in Jesus' time. Why are these prophets? They'd warned them in order to turn their back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, verse 27, you gave them into the hand of the enemies who made them suffer and then in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, surely you're going to ignore them, God, surely you're going to ignore them. No, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. 
God sent these saviors. There's a book in the Bible called Judges. I think a better name for the book of Judges would have been the book Saviors. These people that stepped into history and just helped them come right, whether it was Deborah, whether it was Samson, these people that just would step in and go, guys, the story of God, remind yourself, remind yourself of what it's all about. And that's how God responds to our rebellion. He sends these saviors. The greater one was still to come, of course. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of your enemy, their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. How frustrating is this? I mean, are you just going, Paul, how many more of these events are you going to portray? This is the story of the Bible. God makes a promise, makes a covenant, and the people don't bring their end of it. Years from now, uh, Peter, who spends three years with Jesus as a disciple, asks Jesus the following question. He says, Jesus, how many times are we meant to forgive people? Like, I mean, once, twice, three times. That's what the rabbis taught at that time. They said three times. Like, that's a legit number. But that's kind, kind of a lot. And Peter said, Jesus, I've hung out with you. I see how you roll. I'd say seven times, right? I mean, that's three times two plus one. So that's a lot. That's a lot, Jesus. I've really been close to you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, haven't you got it, man? 77 times seven, which I don't know what that number is, but it's meant to represent infinity. How many times should we forgive? 77 times seven. And there's a danger when we hear that because we sit such in an individualistic Western mindset. I, I thought of it the following analogy. You know when you walk along the prom, there's those little plastic things with the bags inside, right? Why are they the bags there? They're there so that you can scoop up the poop from your dog, right? So there's the dog, master of the land, walking in. You're afterwards going, sorry, sorry, little dog. And you can kind of think when you read through the history of God's people, it's like, is that how it works? Like, no matter what I do, no matter how rebellious, no matter what I get up to, God's just so delighted that I'm around. He's just going to scoop up my poop and say, oh, there you go. And it's kind of a good deal, right? I can do whatever I want, and God hurries after me. In our, in, our, in our self-centered way, we can actually get to a place. I love sinning. God loves cleaning up. This is a great partnership. And it's completely wrong because he has the deal. God is doing this patiently, mercifully, because he made a promise and he delivers on his promise. His righteousness demands that he Forgive. You know, when 1 Corinthians gets written and it gets, it gets read out at weddings, it starts with love is patient. It's just the patience of God lasting thousands of years, not because Abraham is special, not because the Israelites are special, not because we're special, but because he's righteous and he's good and he's declared something that he's going to deliver. If God has predestined for you to be a son of his, to be to be joined to him for eternity, to be in Christ for eternity, guess what? It's going to happen because he's made a commitment. And it is a glorious thing to dwell on and to, and to see who God is fresh in, to realize in light of that love and that sacrifice and that persistence and that faithfulness, why would I want to go around wasting my life and expect God to sort it out? No, I'd, I'd want to get close to him and hear his heartbeat and think, let me join in on the kingdom. Let me join in on what you're getting up to because you're so good. 
What you say is true. And yet, we'll read in verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then comes the first request. They've prayed this history. This is a prayer that has no request. I mean, this is like, imagine in a life group. I mean, how we like, hey guys, let's get all prayer requests. It's like, imagine you don't even get to those yet. You're just praying about who God is and what he's done. Now they finally get a request. Verse 32, it says, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This is the request. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's the request. Thank God, this, all this stuff we've gone through, please don't think it's a small thing. It's actually really, it's been a lot. Being in exile in Babylon, having to travel all the way back, rebuild everything, it's been a lot, but yet we've deserved it. We've deserved it, no question. And yet, yet we're talking to you and yet we're anticipating mercy. Keep reading verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. They're worshiping in spirit and in truth. They're laying it all on the table here. We haven't served you. We didn't turn from our wicked ways, and yet we're anticipating your mercy. Verse 36 says, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies, over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. We're in great distress. It's fully deserved. And yet we're crying out to you. And yet we're recounting your work with a weak and vulnerable people. And we're seeking comfort from you alone. On what basis, on what basis would a people who know the truth about themselves and their, and their wickedness and their rebellion from God, they know they've been living in all the wrong stories, on what basis would they approach a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, promise-keeping God a God full of justice, but yet a God they're anticipating mercy from. How can this God be both just, punishing rebels, but yet merciful to those very same rebels? God's not a fool. He's not a divine poop scooper who's running after people, just desperately hoping that they'll be his friend. God sees it all. He's going to judge it all. And yet, here are people who are rebels, who believe all of that about God, but yet are approaching him with an anticipation of mercy. How? How could that be? There's only one way. There's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. The holy comfort we all seek is only found in Jesus. Born of a woman, he's like a man, except unlike us who fall away and lose way and live in the wrong story, he lived in the true story of God his whole life. He lived according to the law in perfect obedience, and that's why when he represents us before the Father, and when he receives the wrath that falls upon him, he is capable of covering our sin and dealing with our sin. And more than that, of then giving us his righteousness, his perfection. He's not just a man, but he's a God who's risen from the dead and now is alive and reigning. And Paul
pouring out his spirit such that we can walk in the righteousness that he alone provides. There is good news here this evening. Holy comfort is only found in one place. Jesus, God with us, the man who represents us and who gives us his righteousness. He can be known, he can be trusted, and he can be enjoyed for all eternity. 